following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about the four paths to immortality. This is a teaching that's actually out of Gurdjieff, and if you're not familiar with Gurdjieff, he was a mystic and a very popular esoteric teacher early on in the 1900s to the mid-1900s, and he uh, became really popular in Russia and had a lot of students there and then kind of moved around the world and was able to set up different esoteric schools in different places. But this teaching is also in the Gnostic teaching, and so I thought it'd be helpful for us to get the basics and really understand where the Gnostic tradition fits into a variety of um, spiritual paths. And we're going to learn that the Gnostic path is actually the fourth of these paths that we're going to talk about today. But it's important for us to think about how this relates to us, so I want you to remember why you're here not just here studying Gnostic teachings, but why did you get interested in spirituality in the first place? Maybe years ago, you had a longing, something that's not necessarily rational, but you knew that there must be something more, or you felt curious about these things. And so I want you to remember that because the motivation is really important to keep you centered. If you think about going on a path, you're going on a long journey, you're going to encounter some obstacles and difficulties. So it's essential that you always remember why you're on that path. What is the point? What is your motivation for being there? If you can't think of your motivation, how are you going to make it all the way to the end? And another thing that's important for us to remember is what's the goal of our spiritual work? Because if you don't even know the destination you're trying to get to, well then again, you might get easily lost on your journey. Uh, We talked about it a few weeks. What's the goal of our spiritual work? What are we really hoping to achieve by coming to this type of group or studying teachings or doing practices? What's the outcome that we're really looking for? Here in the Gnostic tradition, the purpose of spirituality is for us to experience and know divinity, to understand ourselves in deep ways, and to be freed from suffering. And if you keep that in mind when you're encountering difficulties when other things come up in your life, then it can keep you motivated to get all the way to the end. So, the spiritual paths 
This is what Gurdjieff has to say about them. He says, it is necessary clearly to understand the idea that the ways, the spiritual paths, are the only possible methods for the development of man's hidden possibilities. This in turn shows how difficult and rare such development is. The development of these possibilities is not a law. The law for man is existence in the circle of mechanical influences, the state of man-machine. The way of the development of hidden possibilities is a way against nature. What he's pointing out here is that we're not all going to become magically enlightened just by going along with the flow. That we need ways, we need spiritual paths, we need specific methods by which we can develop all of the capacities of a human being and can develop our soul. And to be able to do that actually is to go against nature because nature works towards nature's ends. And nature doesn't work for us to become the highest form of human being that we're able to do. So this is the same, same sentiment that we have in the Gnostic tradition as well. But he calls them the four paths to immortality. So what does immortality mean? It has that root there of mort, which means death, and mortal, which means to be subject to death. Gurdjieff says elsewhere that if there is anything in a man able to resist external forces, then this very thing itself may also be able to resist the death of the physical body. So we're trying to consider what is something that is within us that can resist external forces. So I think um, we have circumstances in our life where people are really rude to us or where life is um, getting really difficult, but there might be some piece of us that's able to resist those external forces, that's able to struggle, to rise above them, uh, to perform feats that uh, seem, in a, in a relative sense, a bit miraculous, that we were able to overcome all odds. And so Gurdjieff is saying that if we are cultivating that part of us that is able to resist those external forces, then that is the part of us that may be able to resist our physical death. So let's hear exactly what he says about immortality. Immortality is one of the qualities we ascribe to people without having a sufficient understanding of their meaning. Only the man who possesses four fully developed bodies can be called a man in the full sense of the word. This man possesses many properties which ordinary man does not possess. One of these properties is immortality. All religions and all ancient teachings contain the idea that by acquiring the fourth body, which is the soul, man acquires immortality. And they all contain indications of the ways to acquire that fourth body, that is, immortality. So what I want to point out here is that he's talking about four fully developed bodies. So we might consider that the bodies that we have right now are not fully developed. He also says that we need to acquire the fourth body, the soul. So this would mean that what we have now is not a fully developed soul, but something that needs to be worked on, and that there are ways in which we can acquire it. Okay, but what are these four bodies he's talking about? So this graphic comes from the Gnostic tradition. It's the, actually the bottom half of the Kabbalistic tree of life, and I thought it would be a good uh, diagram to show you exactly what he's referencing here. So this first sphere here on the bottom is Malkut, and this relates to our physical body. So this is the organic matter all of us can touch and feel. It's the most dense body 
all of us should be pretty familiar with what our physical body is, right? But this is very intimately linked with the vital body. So the vital body is an energetic body by which our physical body is animated. If we didn't have a vital body, well, we'd be dead. We wouldn't have any energy to get up, to move around, to digest food, to breathe, to circulate the blood in our body. And so this is actually one body in Gurdjieff's terms because you can't really separate the vital body from the physical body. So that's the first of the four bodies that Gurdjieff is referencing. And it's related to our motor, instinctive, and sexual functions, all the things that automatically keep us alive. The second body that Gurdjieff is talking about here is the astral body. The astral body is related to our emotions. Uh, it's just a, a vehicle through which we can feel emotions and process them. And it's very similar to the mental body, which is related to our intellect and our thoughts. The mental body gives us a chance to process and experience thoughts. So just in the way that you can't take a thought and show it to somebody, you can't take an emotion and show someone, but yet you know that these are real because you've verified the reality of them in your own awareness, in your own experience. You've felt emotions, you've thought thoughts, right? That's how we see that these bodies exist, but they're more subtle. They're things that don't have physical dense matter, but they're still real parts of us, and they're a little bit multidimensional. And then the fourth body he's talking about is the soul, the human soul, Tiferet, related to the causal body. The causal body can relate to our human willpower. But for all of us, this is kind of an essence. It's a seed of a soul. It's something that needs to be fully developed, and we use the spiritual paths to be able, able to fully develop those. So my question is to you, which of these bodies do you think is the most real body, in your opinion? Right? I think most of us would say it's the physical body. Yeah. Because that's the one that is easiest for us to verify, to touch, to feel, and to see. Mm hmm. Right? But which do you think is the most immortal body? And we know it can't be the physical body because that's the one that all of us will die, right? Physically. The one at the top. Yeah. I think the, the human soul. So then we have to ask ourselves. We live as though our physical body is our reality, as though that's the part of us that matters the most. I mean, we, we take care of it, we feed it, we nourish it. If we feel pain, we comfort the body. If we feel pleasure, we go and we get more of that. We live our whole lives uh, walking around, taking care of our physical body. We might also take care of our emotions. We do things that make us feel proud of ourselves. Um, we might do things that we think are logical. But how much of our lives do we actually invest in our soul? in our spiritual life. And yet this is the part that's going to live on after death if we've developed it. If we've acquired immortality, that's the part of our identity that's going to be the most real and lasting part of us. Yet we live life in this backwards, inside-out kind of way where we're taking all of our time and all of our energy to take care of our physical needs or our emotional desires or what we think. And we're not giving any development to our soul so that when the physical body dies and our terrestrial life ends, our body dissolves, all of the, the merits and the social status and the wealth that we've acquired is gone, will we only have a seed of a soul left or will we have a fully developed soul by which we can resist death? It's an important question. So how do we experience these? I want to introduce to you a topic from 
Gnosticism that we, we talk about a lot. Might sound a little bit confusing right now, but I want to introduce it to you now so that if we talk about it again later, you would know what we're talking about. So the three brains are three energetic centers. And you could see in the diagram where we might feel these types of centers. The idea here is that according to nature, our organism is just a machine. It takes in energy, it processes it, and it keeps moving. It's just a machine. There's no active willpower there. And in order for our machine to be able to process all of these things, we use three brains. The first brain is related to that vital body and the physical body that we talked about on the last slide. It's the motor, instinctive, sexual brain. This controls all of the automatic functions of instinct and movement and sexual reproduction that keep us alive as a natural species, right? The second is the emotional center. Most of us feel that here in the middle region. You know, if you feel fear, you might feel it in the abdomen. If you feel love, it might feel like warmth coming out of your chest, right? So the emotional center, the emotional brain, is what gives us the ability to, to feel and to experience that and to process those emotions. And you see that it's divided into superior and inferior. We teach that there are both uh, superior emotions related with the soul, like joy and compassion, serenity, and that there are inferior emotions that are related with a more, um, you know, animal aspect of the soul. So those could be anger, pride, um, aggression. And finally, we have the intellectual brain that, that deals with all of our thoughts. And that very similarly to the emotional brain is divided into superior and inferior thoughts. Like I said, we're going to talk more about it later on but I just wanted to introduce you to this topic because it will have a lot of relevance to us in our spiritual work. Now, what's interesting about these three centers, even if we separate them out from spirituality, is that most of us have a tendency to, to work with one of these centers more than the others, to work with it in an imbalanced way. So if we think of a motor instinctive sexual type of person, somebody who really resonates with that brain, we can think of athletes, we can think of people um, who really take a lot of time caring for their physical body, so maybe they're always on a new diet or they're running marathons. You know, They're really identified with that part of their body. So if you talk to them, they might not want to sit there and think things through. They might just want to act. These are people that really like movement and action and being quick because the instinctive brain is very fast, much faster than the other brains. Uh, these people might also not have a lot of emotional depth. So, yes, well, so it's, it's not necessarily bad, but their predisposition is to invest a lot of their time and their energy into their physical or their movement center or their instinct, and that's where they feel comfortable. Others, emotional types of people, might be like actors and actresses, people who get really, uh, they have a lot of emotional energy and they get really invested into developing that, into experiencing all the emotional sensations of life. People like this might love dramatic television shows or they might be somebody who loves the newest social gossip and just always needs to know what's going on in my friend group and who did what to who. So some of us might have those kinds of emotional addictions where we really like to feel a certain way. We love romance comedy. And then the third type of person might be an overly intellectual person. So um, this could be people like academics, people who love studying, they love having theories, 
But if you try to connect with them emotionally, they might be very cold. They might not understand what you're trying to talk about when you're talking from an emotional way. They might also neglect their physical health and get very ill uh, because all they want to do is think things through all the time. So we need to think about which type of person we might be. It's not that we don't have the other aspects of us. It's that we do have a preference for one or the other. And, and part of gnosis is understanding yourself, knowing yourself. And so if we want to learn about ourselves, we can think about this and try to discover which type of person am I. And these three brains relate to the three different paths that we're going to talk about. Now, the first path is the path of the fakir. Now, I want to point out that Gurdjieff uses this term fakir very generally um, as just a, all of these terms that we're going to talk about today on these paths, we're just using them in a general sense to refer to different paths that might have a preference for one of the three brains over the others. So the path of the fakir has a preference with the motor instinctive sexual brain. Yeah, well, fakir is a Middle Eastern term. And so uh, this is related with physical willpower. And the physical willpower that the fakir uses is not in the way that we were just describing with athletes, but he's using it in a way to develop himself spiritually. So he's using his physical willpower to be able to conquer the physical body through these tremendous feats. So maybe all of us have seen photos like this where the fakir is lying on a bed of nails or we've heard about um, different spiritual practitioners that go out into the woods and live in a cave, and they barely eat anything, and they just stay there for 30 years straight. Or Right, yeah, or a guy like this who can stand on one foot for 30 years straight without stopping. And they do this in a way to develop willpower and to get closer to divinity. But we have to question about... Is this the full development of a human being? Certainly what they're able to do is incredible and astonishing. But is it the same goal that we're trying to reach, like we talked about earlier? Is it the goal of immortality and the fully developed human being? So let's see what Gurdjieff has to say about it. He says, The way of the fakir is the way of struggle with the physical body. This is a long, difficult, and uncertain way. The fakir strives to develop physical will, power over the body. This is attained by means of terrible sufferings, by torturing the body. The whole way of the fakir consists of various incredibly difficult physical exercises. But his other functions, emotional, intellectual, and so forth, remain undeveloped. He has acquired will, but he has nothing to which he can apply it. He cannot make use of it for gaining knowledge or for self-perfection. So this is a valuable path, and those paths will develop one aspect of us, which is the willpower. But the other functions that we talked about earlier, the emotional and the intellectual functions, might not be fully developed. So can we consider ourselves a fully developed soul, a fully developed human being, if that's the case? We would still have more work to do to reach that end goal. The second path is the path of the monk. It's a devotional path. So again, we're using monk very generally here, just to refer to those types of people who seek to know God through their emotions. And this is a very beautiful path because these people cultivate a lot of what they call faith and emotional love and devotion for God. And they're really seeking union with God. But sometimes these people will say that to know God emotionally and to feel God's presence in my heart and love, that's enough. I don't need to study the scriptures. I don't need to read anything. I don't need to develop any willpower or 
act on the love, that faith is enough. Now, a lot of Christian traditions will teach that faith without works is fine, that faith is all that you need to save you. So those would fall in this general category of the devotional path of the monk that we're talking about. And Gurdjieff says, the way of the monk is the way of faith, the way of religious feeling, religious sacrifice. Only a man with very strong religious emotions and a very strong religious imagination can become a monk in the true sense of the word. The way of the monk is also long and hard. Subjecting all his other emotions to one emotion, that is to faith, he develops unity in himself, will over the emotions. But his physical body and his thinking capacities may remain undeveloped. In order to make use of what he has attained, he must develop his body and his capacity to think. This can only be achieved by means of fresh sacrifices, fresh hardships, fresh renunciations. A monk has to become a yogi, which is the next path we're going to talk about, and a fakir, the last path that we just talked about. So again, even though we've cultivated this beautiful emotional relationship with God through this path, and maybe even had mystical experiences through working with these types of practices, the other paths, the other aspects of our identity might be undeveloped. We might not understand the experiences that we've had, and we might not be able to act on those experiences and perform the right actions that we really feel are necessary to live our faith. Okay, so the third path is the path of the yogi. Gurdjieff uses the term yogi. I like the term scribe a little bit better. For me, that kind of captures the essence of of this path. So not all yogi paths are falling in this category, but again, just using it as a general term, to denote a path that emphasizes intellectual knowledge. So even though these paths might have physical practices to develop our willpower or emotional practices and prayers, they really emphasize that the way to unite with God is through the intellect, through a very advanced knowledge of what God is in our intellect. And in these types of paths, um, we'll notice people that are able to describe things at length, to be able to speak of all the scriptures and give you a very profound theoretical explanation of how God works and how God exists and how all of these things fit together in a system. But again, they might be lacking a little bit of the love and the faith in the heart. They might not have the willpower in which they're really acting and living their faith. So this, again, would be a path that might, might not be a fully developed human soul. Let's see what Gurdjieff says. The path of the yogi is the way of knowledge, the way of mind. The yogi reaches the fourth room, related to the soul, by developing his mind. But his body and emotions remain undeveloped. And, like the fakir and the monk, he is unable to make use of the results of his attainment. He knows everything but can do nothing. In order to begin to do, he must gain the mastery over his body and emotions. To do this, he must again set to work and, and again obtain results by means of prolonged efforts. In this case, however, he has the advantage of understanding his position, of knowing what he lacks, what he must do, and in what direction he must go. So Gurdjieff's saying that he has the advantage of understanding his position, which means that if this is a sincere path, an authentic path of the yogi, then this person would know what steps they need to take next to be able to continue their development. But if they've spent their whole life developing understanding about God through the intellect, then how much time are they going to have left to go back and develop the emotional connection, to go back and develop the willpower and the physical active aspect of their faith? Again, this would be a path that's a little bit out of balance, right? 
So let's reflect on ourselves. Which path do we tend to follow? Like I mentioned earlier, each of us might have a preference for one of these three brains. And if you think about what it's been like for you sitting here in this lecture, you might learn something about yourself. Because if you've been sitting here thinking, oh, I want to get up, I want to move around, I want to act on these things, then you might be related to the path of the fakir. You might be seeking a lot of spiritual development through willpower and action. If through this you were feeling a lot of emotional reactions like, oh, yeah, I really like that part, or I don't like that at all, that just doesn't feel right to me, then you might be somebody who's a little bit more emotional-centered. And if you were reflecting on this through the intellect and thinking, well, that doesn't really make sense because this other thing that I read doesn't make sense with this particular teaching here, then you might be somebody who's a little bit more emotionally centered. Now, as I mentioned, these aren't bad. Most of us, uh, the majority of people, are going to be a little bit out of balance and having a preference for one of these paths over the other. But we need to know ourselves because if we follow one of these three paths, are we really going to reach that goal of our spiritual work that we talked about? If we're only developing ourselves emotionally, are we going to be a fully developed human being? If we're only developing willpower over our physical body, but not understanding God and not feeling God, are we fully developed as a soul? And again, if we're only intellectually understanding God, but we're not having any mystical experiences for ourselves to know from our experience what God is, then are we going to reach the goal? And as I mentioned to you before, the fourth path is the Gnostic path. So the way of the Gnostic uh, is the way of equilibrium. We use all three of these centers within our body in balance. And that when they're in balance, something new can awaken within us. When we're not overly emotionally identified with our circumstances, when we're not off thinking in theories and kind of distracted from our life, and when we're not physically and instinctively reacting to everything on impulse, when we're able to have those three brains in balance through the use of different practices and meditation and prayer, that is when our consciousness, the seed of our soul, can awaken. And when the consciousness begins to awaken, that's when our spiritual work really begins. We're able to begin to develop ourselves. We can experience life in a new way. I don't know if you've ever had an experience of awe. Maybe you saw something really beautiful. So it wasn't necessarily that you were thinking about that thing or even that you were trying to feel for that or that you were, you know, uh, moving around and acting. Maybe those brains, those three centers, had energy in them, but there was something else in you that was active, something that really felt that there is something spiritual here, something divine, and you could feel that through that connection in your own self. That's the consciousness. And we work with the we work with the consciousness on the path of equilibrium. So Uspensky, who was a prominent student of Gurdjieff, talked about this fourth way. He was asked, does the fourth way embrace the three other ways? So the three that we just talked about. And he answered, no, this is a wrong description because the fourth way does not have many of the things which enter into the first three ways. And it has many other things that do not enter into the three ways. The idea of the fourth way is that it discards from the three ways all that is unnecessary in them, because besides the necessary things, the three ways have other things which have remained there purely through tradition, imitation, and so on. In the fourth way, all the sides can develop, develop at the same time. And this makes it different from the other ways, where you first develop one side, and then go back and develop another, then again go back and develop a third side. 
In the fourth way, all the four centers must be more or less alive on the surface, open to receive impressions. Otherwise, long preliminary work to open them is necessary before one can begin. So what's unique about the fourth way is that it does not neglect the development of those three other centers, those three aspects of us, but allows us to use consciousness to work on all three brains, all three centers at the same time. And that's what makes the fourth way a path of balance and the most efficient means by which we can develop ourselves spiritually into a fully balanced human being, a full human soul. So let's hear what Gurdjieff said. Gurdjieff said, the fourth way requires no retirement into the desert, does not require a man to give up and renounce everything by which he formerly lived. The fourth way begins much further on than the way of the yogi, which is the path of the mind. This means that a man must be prepared for the fourth way, and this preparation must be acquired in ordinary life and be a very serious one, embracing many different sides. Furthermore, a man must be living in conditions favorable for work on the fourth way, or, in any case, in conditions which do not render it impossible. Furthermore, the fourth way has no definite forms like the ways of the fakir, the monk, and the yogi. And, first of all, it has to be found. This is the first test. In some of the other paths, there were a lot of requirements, a lot of austerities that were necessary. And what Gurdjieff's pointing out is that when we're working with the consciousness, which is the fourth way, we don't have to physically change our circumstances. We don't have to retire into the desert or be able to lie on a bed of nails or pray for 12 hours a day or sit in meditation for 30 years straight. The fourth way doesn't, doesn't require us to change our life. And yet it is the most efficient way that we can follow because it gives us the chance to work on all the different sides of ourselves all at once. But he does point out that a man must be living in conditions favorable for the, for, for the work on the fourth way. And we mentioned earlier that we might have habits that take us out of balance. So we might have habits where we're getting very emotionally invested in what other people are saying and doing. And that might take away energy from our spiritual life. We might have habits in which we're spending a lot of time um, theorizing, intellectualizing, studying. And that might not be the right conditions in which we can develop ourselves. Or we might always be running around always needing to, you know, get ready for my next marathon. So the conditions he's talking about needing for our spiritual life are not necessarily conditions imposed upon us. All of us have to have a job. We have to work. You know, we have to be able to eat. We have to take care of our families. But what are the other things in our life that are making it impossible for us to develop our soul? Because we already talked about earlier that we invest a lot of energy into our physical identity, my name, my culture, my race, my job. We invest a lot of energy into that. But when we come to the end of life and we die, how much will we have really developed the soul, which is the part of us that's going to be the most immortal? So that's why he says the fourth way has no definite forms. There's no external school that you have to be following or rigorous discipline that you must do. Although those things can be useful for us, but but that we need to be able to find the fourth way. And how do we find something that doesn't have a definite external form? How do we find a spiritual path that doesn't force us to stay with one group or another? Well, that's the fourth way. And the first test for us is to find it. And we find that by awakening our consciousness. Because the path is within us. The real way to develop the soul, the real way to know God, is to turn around our vision and to look within to look with our consciousness, the part of us that is most divine, 
and to develop them to be able to experience it. So we have to ask ourselves, if the path is within us, why don't we see it? Why don't we find this path? Why aren't we able to develop? Well, it's probably because we're investing a lot of our time and energy looking out without looking within. The oracle at Delphi said that, man, know thyself, and you will know the universe and its gods. We're kind of taught in this materialistic culture that we need to know a lot of facts about the, the natural world, you know, physics and how do atoms work, how can we harness more natural resources. And so in that frame of mind, we're actually trained to seek to understand nature, and that's how we're going to know what human beings are and how we fit into all of this. But if we follow that advice of knowing ourselves first, then we would understand what is our place in the universe. What is God? What is divinity? Why does nature exist and how can we use it as a school for our own development? That would be the way of the fourth path. And that would be the way of awakening consciousness. To go within, to know who we are through our own conscious and direct experience. So... The Gnostic tradition was founded by Samael Anbeor, and I know we've mentioned him before, but he has a really great quote about these, about awakening consciousness that I wanted to share. He says, Certainly and in the name of truth we shall say with great frankness that only by awakening consciousness can we see the narrow, straight, and difficult path that leads unto light. How could those who sleep see the path? He's pointing out that in Gnosis, we believe that the path of awakening consciousness is the way that we can fully develop and fully reach light or life, spiritual knowledge. It's not that the other paths are not useful. They are useful and they help us to develop, but they won't take us all the way there. They won't take us to that full direct experience and understanding of what divinity is. In order to do that, we can't learn that from the external world. We have to learn that by awakening our own consciousness and by knowing for ourselves through our own soul what divinity is, why all of this stuff, all of this nature is here. What's the purpose of life? And he says, how could those who sleep see the path? If we're living in an unbalanced way, we're probably asleep. So we should notice that, and we should think about ways in which we can invest a little bit into the other parts of our life, into the other parts of our soul. Because if we are really identified with one of these three brains, then we're not going to be able to balance the three brains and then awaken consciousness. Consciousness is awakened when we're living in balance. We need to learn how to do that. But I know that it can sound pretty abstract. What does it mean to awaken consciousness? For most of us, we're able to have a pretty good sense from our own experience what our emotions are and what our thoughts are and what our physical body is and even what, what energy is like moving through our bodies, you know, what keeps us alive. But it can be hard to think of, well, how is consciousness different from that? We're actually kind of taught, even if we don't say that we believe it, we're kind of taught in this culture that consciousness is just an epiphenomenon of the brain. That means it's just a result of chemical reactions. And that if you cut off the physical brain, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't exist anymore. There'd be no more consciousness. This is the very materialistic scientific view of what consciousness is and what people are. But if you actually been able to work with consciousness, you know that it's something that is not limited to this, to this physical body. You know that it's something that can persist outside of the body through death, through astral projection. Maybe you've read near-death experience stories. So we know that there has to be a way in which we can activate that part of ourselves. But what's it going to feel like? 
I'm going to give you an example from my own life. Some time ago, I was working with these practices, and I remember very vividly one experience I had where I was talking with a colleague. And for some reason in that, in that moment, I was working with this. I was self-observing, and I had the three brains in balance. I was feeling very tranquil. I was very aware of the, the coffee shop that we were sitting in. I was aware of this person talking to me and what he was saying to me. And I could even you know, feel the, the chair that I was sitting in. So I was very bright and conscious and attentive, but I wasn't necessarily thinking a bunch of, of thoughts. I was just awake. And in that moment, my colleague had asked me a question. And from, from that state, I made a conscious choice that I would answer honestly, even though the answer might not be what the colleague wanted to hear. And then his whole face changed, and he made a comment that was critiquing what I had said. And since I was fortunate in this moment to, to really have the consciousness active, I began to observe a change in myself that I found very astonishing at the time. I could feel my instinctual center starting to tension, tense up, starting to feel very almost frightened of this person or, or angry about what they'd said. I felt that as tension in my body. I observed these emotions of pride and anger and insecurity coming in my, in my emotional center. And I was able to even observe thoughts. My, my mind was already trying to think of what responses can I say to convince this person that he's wrong about me and he needs to respect me. Because this was a colleague that I really respected his work a lot. So of course I wanted him to think of me favorably. But since I was awake, I was able to be aware of that whole process in me and have a space of separation from which I could choose. Do I want to respond with anger, with justifications and with pride? to have an argument with this person that could eventually start a chain of consequences that would be problematic for me at work? Or do I want to answer calmly, serenely from this conscious place and not have to act in this instinctual, habitual way that I always respond to situations where people are criticizing me? So awakening consciousness gives us the power to be able to choose how we're going to respond to life rather than mechanically always reacting to life in the way that we're conditioned to do by our own psychology. Gurdjieff also says somewhere else that the highest thing that a man can attain is to be able to do. He's teaching that even though we feel like we're great actors in our life and that we're the ones going out and paving the way and deciding exactly what our life is going to be, in reality, if we're sincere and we reflect on our life, most of it has been determined by external forces. Most of the time, we're just reacting to situations that keep coming. Somebody's angry at us. Somebody's beating us up, and we just react to that. You know, we change our job because we can't get along with our boss. There's not so much choice. There's not so much freedom and power and the ability to really do what we want to do in our life. But when we're working with consciousness, we begin to cultivate some of that power. It's even freedom from our own circumstances. And that's a truly tremendous thing. It's the beginning of the path. So another statement that I think summarizes all of what we talked about that Samael Anbiwar says is no matter how much we might increase our strictly mechanical energy, we will never awaken consciousness. No matter how much we might increase the vital forces within our own organism, we will never awaken consciousness. Many psychological processes take place within us without any intervention from the consciousness. However great the disciplines of the mind might be, mental energy can never achieve the awakening of the diverse functions of the consciousness. 
Even if our willpower is multiplied infinitely, it can never bring about the awakening of the consciousness. All these types of energy are graded into different levels and dimensions which have nothing to do with the consciousness. Consciousness can only be awakened through conscious work and upright efforts. So he's pointing out here is that even though this is an internal process of awakening consciousness, it's not a mechanical process. We have lots of things that go on inside of us all day. We might get distracted, we might feel bored, we might feel angry, we might feel excited. We might do all of that in a way in which we're asleep, in which we're not seeing those situations for what they are. There might be no active consciousness there. We're just kind of mechanically going through the day. So none of those things, just thinking about God, just feeling God in our heart, or feats of willpower alone and in and of themselves can help us to awaken consciousness What we really need to do is to work with the consciousness through conscious work. That means paying attention, being aware of yourself from moment to moment all the time. It's very difficult in the beginning, but over time as you're working with that, just like strengthening any muscle, it can be much easier to be aware of yourself. And he also talks about upright efforts. I think it's important to point out that he means upright as in ethical, as in living your life with rectitude. So we don't need a moral dogma to tell us how to live, but each of us needs to know from our own conscience, from our own heart, what is ethical. If we decide that we're going to awaken consciousness, but we're working with with that energy in a way that's harmful and that's harming ourselves or others, or in a way that is imbalanced, what we're actually doing is we're strengthening our psychological imbalance and we're making it harder for for ourselves to become free from our conditioning and from our circumstances. So we need to make sure that we're finding our own internal ethic and we're really living by that, finding a way to live that we think is upright. Okay. So we're going to talk about the practice of conscious self-observation. It's actually on your handout, so you'll be able to take that home and work with it more. But Gurdjieff makes a statement about the fourth way that I think is really important to understanding conscious self-observation. He says... The fourth way differs from the other ways in that the principal demand made upon a man is the demand for understanding. A man must do nothing that he does not understand. The more a man understands what he is doing, the greater will be the results of his efforts. This is a fundamental principle of the fourth way. The results of work are in proportion to the consciousness of the work. No faith is required on the fourth way. On the contrary, faith of any kind is opposed to the fourth way. On the fourth way, a man must satisfy himself of the truth of what he is told. So let's break it down a little bit. He says, the most important thing is the demand for understanding. And we've talked many times about how the word gnosis means knowledge, but experiential knowledge. Knowledge that we've gained through our own experience of life. When we're awakening consciousness, we are beginning to understand ourselves in new ways. You know, in the example that I gave, I caught myself about to react in an unconscious way that I had reacted many times, anytime somebody had criticized me, which is to argue and create more problems for myself. So I was able to understand myself by becoming conscious and working on this fourth way. I learned something about myself, and I also had the power to change it, to realize, why do I keep doing this? This is creating problems for me, and it's not worth it. Let's take that energy and invest it back into my spiritual life. He says that a man must do nothing that he does not understand. Most of us go through life doing things, feeling like, oh, i got to get this done. I need to do this stuff for work so that my boss thinks I'm great. Whatever the different demands in our life are. But do we really understand them? 
we might intellectually understand them. But experientially, with awakened consciousness and with our very soul, do we understand ourselves and the things that we do? Gurdjieff says, the more that a man understands what he is doing, the greater will be the results of his efforts. The more consciousness that we cultivate, the more that our actions can create powerful effects in our lives. Now, this can work two ways. If you're very conscious of what you're doing, but you choose to do harmful behaviors, or you choose to do things that are out of balance, the results of that work are going to be more powerful. So you're actually going to strengthen imbalances or create more problems for you. But if you're working with consciousness to become a better person, to sincerely understand yourself, to know what divinity is in your own experience, that can have very powerful effects because you're really working with the root energy of who you are. The consciousness is the root energy by which we experience thought and emotion and physicality. It's actually the source of who we are. And yet sometimes we live the other way around, as though this physical body and this terrestrial identity is who, that, who I am. Gurdjieff also says that no faith is required on the fourth way. On the contrary, faith of any kind is opposed to the fourth way. So we don't have to take for granted that what a church or a religion or a scientist or a teacher tells us is true. On this fourth way and on the Gnostic path, we are seeking to know for ourselves what is the truth. We can use different teachings to help us, to guide us, to give us a sense of where we might begin. But really, we ultimately need to not trust blindly what other people tell us. We need to awaken our own consciousness through different types of practices, such as conscious self-observation, and then know for ourselves so that we can satisfy ourselves with the truth of what we're told. All right, and I want to end on a note here. This comes from the Bible. In Romans, it said, do not be conformed to this world. That's talking about not being conformed by our external circumstances, not living, always reacting to the world and the expectations that are placed on us by other people and by society, but cultivating something within ourselves that is free from that, that can resist external forces. It says, but do not, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When we awaken consciousness, we are working with an energy that is new, that is always spontaneous, that is always able to perceive things as they truly are, perceive things not through the filter of the intellect, not through the filter of the emotions, not through an instinctive filter, but to truly perceive them in a new way. And that transforms us. The renewing of our mind helps us to become new people, better people. When we're able to do that, when we're able to have the three brains in balance, to be working with the consciousness separate and free from our external conditioning and from our psychological conditioning, then you will be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. I hope that the reason for all of us being here and for learning about spiritual things is because we want to understand what is God's will. What's God's purpose for me? Why am I alive? What's the meaning of life? When we're working in balance, when we're awakening the consciousness, from that we enter into a state in which we can actually begin to understand God and know what it is, what's my calling, what am I supposed to be doing with my life, how do I develop myself. By doing these practices, this is the prerequisite to be able to do all of that spiritual development. So what I've gone over here today is really just the basics, just an introduction. We have many, many practices through which we can awaken consciousness, through which we can develop ourselves and our own self-knowledge and our knowledge of divinity that we're going to cover over the next few meetings. 
But I think this is a good introduction for us to get a sense and even hopefully have learned something about ourselves and our own um, psychological disposition, how we tend to approach spirituality, and to consider how we might balance out that approach by working with the other centers a little bit more, getting those three brains in balance through meditation and through self-observation, and be able to activate our consciousness so that we can experience life in a new way, in that way that inspires awe and allows us to act from our own conscience, from our own connection with divinity. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at chicagognosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.